Good morning. It's a wonderful privilege to be with you again this morning. As uh, Brandon said, I'm from the south, uh, the deep south, the, the really, really deep south. And so if you have to listen a little closer this morning because of my accent, uh, forgive me, but I hope that the Lord will enable you to do that. <laughs> Our pastor, Justin, uh, asked me to please pass his greetings on to you. Uh, we love this church. We are grateful for the opportunity to partner with you in any way that we can. All the men that, that have been here, that I've spoken to, that have come back, love being with you. And uh, I do too. So grateful for this opportunity. As was said a little earlier by Brandon, Christ is building his church. And boy... Do we need that hope and help today? If we look at what's going on in our world, if we look at even what's going on within the church, if you're not careful, you can easily lose sight of eternity. You can get sucked into all sorts of fleshly, carnal debates and arguments and, and they profit very little in terms of your Christian witness and even less so in light of eternity. If you spend any time on social media, you can, you can easily despair and wonder, Lord, is it now? Are you coming now, Lord? I found myself praying this more recently. Lord, come now, Lord Jesus. Please come. Prepare me, but, but come even now, Lord. kind of feels like the end times, doesn't it? Now, I definitely don't want to pretend like I'm suggesting I know the hour because I don't. But we know we're in the last days. There have been some crazy people who resemble what some would say is the Antichrist or, or many Antichrists all at once. There are plagues in Africa, swarms of locusts that are miles wide destroying crops and livestock and homes. Diseases like the COVID-19 there's lawlessness in our land. There's those that call good evil and evil good. There's so many lies out there. The fake news. You don't know what to believe or who to believe. And who knows what truth is anymore. What makes things harder is when this disagreement of truth creeps its way into the church. Those that are so-called Christians. Now this group is broad. The Bible reminds us that it's made up of goats and sheep, that it's made up of wolves and sheep. We are to be alert. We are to watch for danger from within. And we are encouraged to abide in Him so that the truth will be known. We know there's nothing new under the sun, right? And so for our text this morning, as you turn over to 1 John chapter 3, we're going to spend most of our time in verses 1 through 3, but allow me to set the context for us a little. John writes to a community that is troubled by schisms. There's been division. We don't really know all the details of what the split 
was all about. And since we only have one response by one side, we have to read a little bit between the lines to, to figure what's going on. The disagreement's been serious enough that some folks have packed up and left the church. Anyone who's ever experienced the trauma of church split can imagine how devastating this development would have been for both parties on either side of the divide. This community was unable to remain in fellowship due to the significant differences in their belief about Jesus. At the heart of the matter, John tells us that there are people that have left that are denying that Jesus is the Christ. They are denying He is the incarnate Son of God. The awkward thing is they still understand themselves to be followers of Jesus. But what they believe and what they confess differs from those who remain. One of the primary aims of 1 John is to persuade the remaining community members that they have good reason to hold fast to their confession because they've experienced its truth in their very existence as a community. John emphasizes this community theme and this experience that they've had in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 John. He says, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Faith, according to this writer, is not simply a matter of one claiming to believe something. It's the testimony of the real life embodied experience that has been given to them by God in their community. The glue that holds the church together is God's love. Just in case you wondered if it was preference, it's certainly not. It's God's love that binds them together as the family of God. Those who have chosen to depart claim fellowship with Jesus. They claim they have no sin. We see that in chapter 1 verse 8. All the specific details of their sin is not spelled out. There's no list of behaviors or actions, except we know they chose to leave the group. Chapter 2 tells us, verse 18, they went out from us. From the perspective of 1 John, their departure violates the identity of community as those that love one another. Although they claim to have the light of Christ, their actions don't show it. They hate brother or sister, chapter 2, verse 9. In other words, the opponents talk the talk but they do not walk the walk. In contrast, 1 John urges the community that remains to abide in Christ by walking just as He walked. The main issue then is the importance of living in community in such a way that it reflects their walk with Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 18, just before our text, he warns against antichrists. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the antichrist is coming. So many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. 
and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing you've received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught to you, abide in him. Be with him. In verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so we see John trying to make these distinctions between what is false and deceptive and what is true and what is righteous. And so who do you look to? Who do you look for when the world as you know it seems to be falling apart? And it's one thing, brothers and sisters, to look at the world that is perishing and grow despondent because of all the sin you see in the world and even maybe in the church. But if we're honest, it's even harder when you see that the sin within you is bigger than the problem you see out there with everyone else. How do we dis discern what to do next? How do we turn despair and despondency into finding hope? Well, the short answer is that it depends on who you're looking for. It depends on who you're looking to. It depends on who and, and what you're seeing out there. This answer is what Spurgeon called and, and can be theologically known as the beatific vision. This is to say that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. In an instant, we will see Christ for who he truly is now. And we will be made like him. What a thought. Just think about that. This poor, miserable, sinful soul will be like him. It's amazing to think about. As I've said it's one thing to behold a, a great doctrinal truth and to wrestle and debate it and even marvel at it for its worth. It's another thing making application of it and applying it to one's everyday life. And you may say, well, how do you apply the beatific vision to one's life now? Practically speaking, the beatific vision speaks of our hope and our holiness as believers. More specifically, what is the substance of that hope and the motivation for that holiness that we so desperately need? And so read with me, if you will, our text for this morning. 1 John 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 
And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Before we go any further, uh, join with me in prayer, asking for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together in your word. Lord, nothing surprises you. Nothing is new to you. Even though we may panic and see what is going on in the world, what is going on in the church, and frankly what is going on in our own hearts, Father, we only have one place to turn, and that's to you. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would uh, care for this land, that you would uh, continue to build your church, that you would help us to discern the difference between truth and error, that you would help us in our focus of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would have spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the call that you've placed on our lives. And so we ask that you be glorified through the preaching of your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm struggling a little bit with this uh, earpiece, but bear with me if you don't mind. The title of this morning's sermon is Seeing is Believing. We shall see him as he is, the text says. It is he that thus hopes in him that is able to purify himself. This speaks of a future hope with a present reality. This is not a pie-in-the-sky theology. It's a practical outworking in one's life. In our times of despair, we have to look to the future. If you're seeking to be biblical and godly in your worldview, you have to look forward and upward. And perhaps you have to get off social media. You might even have to turn off that news channel you love to watch and look to God's Word for a moment. This morning, we will see that John encourages us with five perspectives about our lives as believers that will separate us from the world. It will draw us to one another. It will draw us to Christ. And in the process, it will transform us into the image of Christ. The first perspective we need is that we need to see the Father's love for us. Look there in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Other versions say, Behold what manner of love. See what's been bestowed upon us that we should be called children. Having just mentioned being born of Him, John speaks in amazement about this kind of love that makes us children of God. <clears throat> he wants us to behold it, that is to look at it, Study it intently. Think on these things. And it's great benefit to a Christian to take a good intense look at the love that God has given us. Especially when you see what seems to be God's hand taken off the world. Given to us speaks of many things. It speaks of the measure of God's love to us. It, it can be translated lavished on us. 
Secondly, it speaks of the manner of God's giving of that love. Giving has the idea that it's, it's one-sided giving. It's not asking for something earned in return. Some commentators suggest that this Greek word for manner or kind of love is referring to another world's love, an unearthly love. This kind is not from here. It's from another land. It's not man-like. It's God-like love. What is it that makes us so slow to believe the love of God? Sometimes it's pride, which demands to prove its worth before it can receive the love of God. Sometimes it's unbelief. We cannot trust the love of God when we see the hurts and the pains of this life. And sometimes it just takes time for a person to come to a fuller understanding of the greatness of God's love. To see or to behold means God wants us to see this love and he's not ashamed to show it to us. I love how Spurgeon puts it like only he can. On behalf of the Lord, he says, You poor people that love me, you sick people, you unknown, obscure people, without any talent, I have published it before heaven and earth and made the angels know it that you are my children and I am not ashamed of you. I glory in the fact that I've taken you for my sons and daughters. We are called children of God. The greatness of this love is shown in that by it, we are called children of God. As God looked down on lost humanity, He might have merely had a charitable compassion, pity on our plight, both in this life and in eternity. And with mere pity, He could have just set forth a plan of salvation where man could be saved from hell. But God went far above that to call us children of God. The Father does. He says, I will call you, uh, sorry, I will be a father to you and, I shall, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The Son does. He says he's not ashamed to call us brethren, Hebrews 2.11. The Spirit says the same thing, Romans 18, 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The fullness of the Trinity brings us in to that childhood. There is a sense in which uh, it's totally unnecessary, this blessing that God gives during this course of salvation. But He demonstrates it to us. And He shows us His pure and deep and true love for us by calling us His children. It's our Father's love, the Father of Christ, the Father of us in Christ, He who has adopted us into His family. He's regenerated us by His grace and He's freely given us a new identity. We are children of God. So we see His great love for us. Secondly, we see who we are now. The second part of verse 1 says, we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let us never again think of a Christian just as someone who's trying to live a good life, trying to be a little bit better than somebody else. A person with belief in doing certain right things and certain forms and ceremonies of keeping certain regulations dictated by the church. Christians do all of that, 
But before that is the vital fact that we are children of God. We have been born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. We've received something special of the very nature and the life of God Himself. We are transformed people. We are a new creation. And we are therefore absolutely, essentially different to those who haven't experienced it. That is the very basic thing the New Testament everywhere teaches concerning the Christian. John has just said to us in verse 1 that we are actually children of God. Why does he repeat it again in verse 2? Because he wants to hammer this essential truth home and have us clench it in our minds. He says, now, right now in the present, we are children of God. That is our current position, and it should dominate every aspect of our lives. For better or worse, the families to which you are born into have a huge impact on how you grow up and live. Some grow up in loving uh, or unloving abusive homes where uh, anger flares up every day. A child growing up in that home is bound to be damaged by it unless the grace of God through the gospel lays hold of them. Other children grow up in godly homes where love and kindness are daily fair. The husband treats his wife with gentleness and respect, and the wife submits to and speaks well of her husband. The children are instructed in the ways of the Lord, and they see it modeled in front of them every day. The family reads the Bible together. They pray together. They, they go to God's uh, church and, and, and with God's people on a Sunday. And growing up in that kind of home will have a far different impact on the children than the previous family. Their position as children in that kind of home greatly affects how they will think and how they will live. How they will live. Perhaps you're sorrowful that you didn't enjoy such a godly upbringing. But if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, what John is saying now is you are in such a godly family. The family of God, this community, you can rightly call the holy, almighty God, Father. You are His beloved child, more precious to Him than any child to His earthly father. As a child of God, you have to be reminded you have a, a vast fortune. You're an heir to a vast fortune. Paul puts it this way, Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself tes testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. That new position of being a child of God in the family of God should shape how you think how you live, how you relate to this world, how you relate to the many temptations in this life. It should affect our conduct. And Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Children of God, says, I do feel that this is perhaps the greatest weakness of all in the Christian church, that we fail to realize what we are or who we are. He goes on to say that most of our unhappiness is due to our failure to relate our trials to our glorious position as children of God. He continues, if only we realized who we are, then the problem of conduct would almost automatically be solved. The more I read the New Testament, the more I see 
that every appeal for conduct and good living and behavior is always made in terms of our position. Godly conduct rests on our understanding of our true and great position as children of God. So we've seen the Father's love for us. We've seen who we are now. Then we need to see the world for what it really is, the third point. The reason why the world does not know us, it says, is that it did not know Him. Friends, we cannot expect to have perfect harmony with the world. In fact, if we do, it may be a sign that we have something wrong. The world won't live like saints. Sinners will do what sinners do. And I've got bad news for us. Sinners will hate us because they hated Him, because they have not known Him. Only to those loved by God has He made Himself known. No one has ever seen God, John 1.18 says, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In order to see God, you have to know God. To know Christ is to see God, John 14.7. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. That's the promise we as believers have received. John 16, 2 and 3, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming. Listen to how the world will think of its noble tasks. That whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. John 17, 26 says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We are not of this world. We should not love anything about it. John has just told us in chapter 2 that the desires of the uh, flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world. The world cannot know Him. Therefore, they cannot identify us for who we really are, the loved of God, those that are His children now. The world cannot understand what the, 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 the problems are within the heart. We cannot look to the world for the answers that only God can provide. Don't look to the world. See the world for what it really is. So we've seen the Father's love for us. We've seen who we are now. Thirdly, we need to see the world for what it really is. And then fourth, we need to see who we will be like. Verse 2. Look there. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Notice a few things here. Our future state is not yet completely revealed or known. John adds, what we will be has not yet appeared. And he seems to mean two things. First, since he immediately adds that when Jesus appears we'll be like him, he means that presently we're not like him. Our future state of glorified perfection, where we'll be free from all impurity of sin, 
is not yet a present reality. Right now we live in the flesh. We are not and never will be perfectly sanctified this side of heaven. And so we need to trust God to grow in purity, which he goes on to say in verse 3. Also, John may be acknowledging that the fullness of our future state of glorification has not yet been completely revealed. We remember this from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I have been fully known. As Paul puts it in Colossians 3, 3-4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Even though we cannot fathom everything that we will be like in heaven, we can trust God that it will be far better than anything we can imagine. Our future transformation is linked to seeing Jesus notice as he is. As I understand it, John is saying that the instant that we see Jesus, we'll become like him. At that moment when he comes, we will be totally sanctified in body, soul, and spirit. Of course, this only applies to those that are his children in this life. Unbelievers will see Jesus just as he is, but that sight will not transform them into his likeness. Rather, they will shrink away in shame and terror from his absolute holiness and the splendor of his glory. As John describes in Revelation 6.16, they will call out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, from the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? The apostle John had seen the earthly Jesus with his own eyes. Believers have seen him with the eyes of faith. Unbelievers who live in sin have not seen him nor known him. But when he comes again in power and glory, every eye will see him. At that glorious moment, all that believe in Jesus Christ in this life will be completely transformed into His image and we will be with Him for eternity. Even though we may not know in great detail what awaits us in heaven, we can rest in this hopeful promise that we will see Him, we will be like Him, and we will be with Him forever. In application, what does this mean? What does this look like? Let's open it up a little further. Our minds often, when we think of Christ, refer to who He was. And so when we think of Him, we think of the baby in Bethlehem. We think of the man who talked with the woman at the well. We wish we could have seen that physician walking among the sick and dying, giving life and uh, you know, healing with his breath. We think of Gethsemane and wish our eyes could pierce through 2020 years and see the, the spectacle that took place there, that we may see him as he was. But believers, we will never see him like that again. Bethlehem's glories are gone forever, so to speak. Calvary's glooms are swept away. Gethsemane's scene is dissolved. They are no longer. 
we cannot and must not see him as he was. Nor would we want to, for we have a larger promise. We shall see him as he is. By way of contrast, just think about these things. We will see the hand and the nail prints too, but the nail would have been withdrawn and forever so. We will see his side and his pierced wound too, but the blood will not flow from it. We will see him not with peasants' clothes around him, but the empire of the universe on his shoulders. We'll see him not with a reed in his hand, but grasping a golden scepter. We will see him not mocked and spat upon and insulted, not bone of our bone in all of our agonies and afflictions and distresses, but we'll see him exalted. No longer Christ the man of sorrows, the acquaintance of grief, but Christ the man-God, radiant in splendor with light, clothed with rainbows, girded with clouds, wrapped in lightnings, crowned with stars, the sun beneath his feet. What a glorious vision this will be. How can we guess what he is? What words can tell us? Even when the apostle John writes about it, he says, and I saw the image like, he, he wasn't even able to fully describe what he saw. How can we speak of these things? We do not know, but whatever he is, with all his splendor unveiled, with all his glories unclouded and himself revealed, we will see him as he is. Further to that, we'll never see our Savior under his Father's displeasure again, but we'll see him honored by his Father's smile. The darkest hour of Christ's life was when his father forsook him. That gloomy hour when his father's hand held the cup to his son's lips and as bitter as it was, he said, drink my son, drink. And when the Savior for a moment, having man within him, strong in his pain, said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It was a dark moment when the father's ears were deaf to his son's cries. And the father's eyes were closed upon his son's pain. My father said the son, can there be another way? Can you remove the cup? Is there no, else, no other way for you to express your severe justice? There is none. And it was a terrible moment when he tasted that vinegar and gall. Darker still was that sad midday, midnight when the sun hid its face. And the da in darkness, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know well that depiction. But believer, you'll never see that sick face. You'll never see those tearful eyes. You will not see that pale body. You will not see that weary, weary heart. You will never see that exceedingly sorrowful spirit. For the Father will never again turn his face away. So what will we see? We will see the Lord lit up with his Father's light as well as his own light. You will see him cared for by his beloved parent. You will see him sitting at his Father's right hand, glorified and exalted forever because we will see him as he is. Notice something else about John's confidence. Our future transformation is certain 
and it will be instantaneous. John says, we know. It's not we speculate or our best forecasts indicate. It's we know. Biblical hope is not a good guess about the future. It's not there's a 50% chance that this will happen. It's 100% certain because it's based on the sure promises of God, on the testimony of His Son as relayed to us by the apostles in the New Testament. As Francis Schaeffer so helpfully pointed out that the Christian faith is rooted in true historical facts. In other words, the modern way of thinking is your faith is your own subjective reality. It may be true for you personally, but it's not absolutely true for everyone. But the Bible is clear that God's truth about Jesus Christ is what Schaefer called true truth. It's supremely revealed in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of which are historically validated. He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. His word about the future is not uncertain speculation. It's absolutely certain, but just not yet realized. We know certainly he will appear, and in that instant, we will be transformed. That instantaneous transformation will include our bodies. In the great chapter of the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 53, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Since sin now dwells in our earthly body, we have to battle against it until we die or until Christ returns. But when He returns, instantly we will receive our new resurrection bodies. At that moment, we'll be freed from all sin. Think about what a day that will be. So John has shown us our present position as children of God and our future hope that when Jesus comes, we will be like Him. He applies it here in verse 3. We've seen the Father's love for us was our first point. Secondly, we've seen who we are now. Thirdly, we need to see the world for what it really is. Fourth, we've seen who we will be like and when. And lastly, number five, see the fruit that will follow these things. Verse 3 does not say if we have our hope fixed on Christ, we ought to purify ourselves. Rather, it says everyone who has their hope fixed on, on God, on Christ, does purify himself. In other words, the test of whether or not you truly understand the teaching of verse 2 will be evident in your practicing of the truth of verse 3. If you understand that you're presently a child of God and that when Jesus comes you'll be like Him, then you'll progressively be purifying your life just as Jesus is pure. We must fix our hope on Christ. As believers, our hope is not in a particular outcome of a certain law in this country or a certain way for man to fix things. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. He said that he was returning to heaven to prepare a place for us. 
And then he adds these wonderful words of hope in John 14, 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He didn't leave us here. He's coming back for us. And when that happens, we will go be with him in the place that he has prepared for us. All of our hope should be fixed on him. Don't fall for the false promises of a man-made solution to the world's problems. Do not put your trust in man. Put your trust in God. If you're struggling in despair or hopelessness, remind yourself of who God is. Romans 15.13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God is the God of hope. The hope that He gives centers on the Lord Jesus Christ and His promise to us. Notice we must come to know Christ in His holiness. The end of verse 3 says, As He is pure. The holiness of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ is a frequent theme in 1 John. He says God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. He refers to Jesus as Christ the righteous, Jesus Christ the righteous. He refers to Jesus as the Holy One. He again affirms that He is righteous. And here He says He is pure. As we've seen in that glorious future day when we see Jesus, that vision will transform us. But I also believe the, the, the extent to which we presently see Jesus in His holiness through the eyes of faith, to that same extent... He will transform us into His glory. Paul says that very thing in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So there's a transformational power in seeing Jesus for who He is. The Holy One. Of course, our only source for this knowledge comes from His Word. So we must fix our hope on Him. We must come to know Him in His holiness. We must purify ourselves now so that we grow to be more like Him. The other side of that coin is that only the blood of Jesus can cleanse us. But yet we are held responsible to keep ourselves pure, to cleanse our hands, to uh, purify our souls, as Peter says. And so when the Word confronts us, rather than ignoring it, we must confess our sins to the Lord. Apply His shed blood as our source of cleansing. Take the necessary steps to avoid that sin in the future. In conclusion, maybe you're thinking, but it's hard to let go of my sins. If we're honest, we sin because we enjoy sinning, at least for the moment. We don't consider the long-term consequences, and so we need to fix our gaze on something different. We need motivation for purity. John says that our motivation should be that we are God's beloved children, that Jesus is coming to make us pure, and these facts should motivate us to purify our lives now. 
even now God's transforming power is at work in us. That conversion, we become children and we made alive together with Him. But that is not all. Paul says that in the future, God will show us exceeding riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. No wonder the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John exclaimed with astonishment, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. That is our hope. That is what we long for. And that is what's going to happen to the life of a believer. And so let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your great mercy towards us who believe. Thank you for adopting us so that we now can be identified as children of yours. Help us, Father, to not be those who Paul spoke of, who in Christ have hope in this life only and are most to be pitied. But allow our hope to be rooted in Christ, in his return, in his promise to complete the good work that he's begun in us. Help us to purify ourselves by your word. For we know that your word is truth and that that's what sanctifies us. Help us to meditate on your word and hide it in our hearts that we may not sin against you as the psalmist said. And help us to encourage one another while it's called today because as the day draw near, draws near, Lord, you know that our hearts are easily deceived. Our hearts are easily hardened due to the deceitfulness of sin. And so we pray that you give us your grace you help us to purify ourselves, for we know that you are pure. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.